Good afternoon. We're going to get started. Thank you for coming today. My name is Caroline Elliott. I'm the manager of adult programs. And uh, please note that today's talk is going to be recorded for podcast um, on our website and on iTunes. Today we have Joyce Beattie with us from the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History, here to talk about the engineering and innovation in the work of Alexander Calder. So Joyce's talk is, is not going to be on the art historical perspective, however we do have our senior curator Valerie Fletcher with us who may be able to provide some insight if we need to um, talk about that. <laughs> Joyce has been studying invention and technology for more than 35 years. She is currently senior historian at the Smithsonian Lemelson Center for the study of innovation and invention, invention and innovation, uh, where she is responsible for the center's scholarly publication program and website, and assists with the development of scholarly programs and exhibitions. She is the co-editor of the Lemelson Center Studies Invention and Innovation book series with MIT Press, and she has also authored publications and exhibitions on the work of Harold Edgerton in stroboscopic photography. Edgerton's work is featured in the first gallery of our damage control exhibition downstairs, if you want to see um, what that's all about. Before joining the Lemelson Center in 1995, Joyce's research and curatorial career included positions at the MIT Museum, the Edison National Historic Site, the IEEE History Center, and the Powerhouse Museum in Sydney, Australia. And she has adjunct faculty at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Please help me to welcome Joyce Beatty. Thank you, Caroline, for that very nice introduction. I wanted to start by this little guy, because even though uh, this sculpture is from the 70s, it reminds me of things that I read about Calder as a child. So I, I wanted to first just give you a little bit of information about the Lemelson Center and why I think I'm here. I was very delighted to receive Caroline's invitation. But the Lemelson Center was founded at the American History Museum in 1995 to study the history of invention and innovation and also to foster inventive creativity in young people. So we have a very active program of public events for families and adults publications, research support, and exhibitions. And I'm delighted that one of my colleagues, who is the archivist in the Archive Center in American History, who specializes in invention collections, is here with us today. Thank Thanks for coming, Allison. At the Lemelson Center, we're currently working on a new exhibition that will open in 2015. It's called Places of Invention, where we're looking at what is the role of place that nurtures, inspires creativity, invention, and innovation. And so I was intrigued when Caroline invited me to come and to speak about Calder. And I started looking at his studios, images of his studios, since I'm so focused on place in my work these days. And I have a, some photos. I have, I have visual aids to pass around. <laughs> uh, to me, his studios look a lot like inventors' workshops. One of his friends described his Connecticut workshop as a marvel of tools, supplies, and workstations. There were lots of tools close at hand. There were bits and pieces of incomplete and dismantled work sitting around as fodder for his next project. He frequently used found objects. It reminded me of a quip that Thomas Edison made over a century ago that to invent, all you really need is a good pile of junk. <laughs> so it got me curious. What characteristics did Calder share with inventors? And what shaped his particular style of art and invention. Well, probably as many of you know, I mean, you probably all know more about Calder than I do. <laughs> 
He was born into a family of artists. Both his father and his grandfather were sculptors. His mother was a painter. But he began working with tools and materials at a very young age. When he was only nine, and this is where I wanted to start here, he cut and soldered together sheets of brass into a small dog. He once said that his favorite possession as a child was a pair of pliers. And his parents encouraged his interest in making things, gave him tools, and set up a home workshop for him. He entered the Stevens Institute of Technology in 1915 and earned a bachelor's in engineering. And at Stevens, he studied kinetics and physics. After college, he had a series of jobs, ranging from stoking the boiler of a steamship to being an efficiency expert. And that last one speaks to the time in which Calder is becoming an adult. He's coming of age in what we call the machine age of the 1920s and 30s. It's a time of technological explosion in many ways. Electrical supplies becoming more widespread, which transforms communications and also home and office technology and appliances. Abundant petroleum fuels a transportation explosion. New develop steel allows new developments in construction, giving us skyscrapers, among other things. It's a time of mass production, which also means a time of efficiency and the rise of the managerial class. It's a time when one historian identified the art world with the cerebral orientation of those who invented and imagined, rather than with the manual skill of those who actually did the work of industry, and celebrated this coming together of these two worlds, of the engineer and the artist, of modern industry and modern art. This is Calder's world. In the mid-20s, he moves to Paris and begins to live the life of an expatriate at a time when the French are enamored of American culture. His art starts to reflect the influences of the machine age, especially in his choice of a common industrial material, iron wire, as his medium. He begins making wire sculptures, including several of his fellow expat, Josephine Baker, and that's one of his Baker sculptures. His art is based in technology and machines. But from the very beginning, it also shows his curiosity about movement. In Paris, he becomes friends with other artists pushing the envelope, like Marcel Duchamp. Duchamp said of this time period, the whole idea of movement, of speed, was in the air. And it informed his very famous new descending a staircase painting. But photographers had begun exploring motion in earnest in the late 1800s. I see two trajectories of this. One is more about stopping motion, freezing a motion in time to examine it in detail. These are photos taken by Arthur Mason Worthington in the 1890s. He was absolutely obsessed with drops and splashes and understanding how um, drops formed. But then we also have people like Ernst Mach, who's photographing projectiles, and it's Mach 1, the speed of sound is named for him. On the other side, and they're not, I shouldn't say on the other side because they cross over and intertwine, but the other part of this is dissecting motion, of trying to understand how things move. Probably the most famous of this is Edward Mybridge, whose pictures of a running horse are, are pretty well known. But in France, there's also, In, in France, we also have the work of physiologist Etienne Jules Marais. And I think you can see a, a, a connection between this photograph 
and Duchamp's painting. This is, becomes the forerunners of motion pictures, which is sort of the opposite of taking the still images and putting them back into motion. Calder, however, isn't limited by the photographic plate. And so his circus, I, I have to go to the Whitney and see this one day, is an early example of exploring motion in three dimensions, of drawing in space. His wife, Louisa, once said that he wasn't happy unless he was fiddling with wire. And he even said in his autobiography, I think best in wire. This, this wire sculpture of tennis player and Olympian Helen Wills from 1928 captures that interest in expressing motion in something as simple as iron wire. And just to show that this trend doesn't disappear in photography, this is a photograph from 1952 of tennis player Gussie Moran taken by Harold Edgerton with a strobe. Throughout Calder's life, everything he did, most everything he did, encapsulated movement. The wire sculptures, some of them are of, are of people in action, or the ones like the Josephine Baker one that's going around, is suspended by a wire, so it, it actually moves. The mobiles, obviously, are all about movement. But he also created toys that moved. And he painted Braniff airplanes, which one person described as the ultimate mobile. And to me, even the stabiles look like they're about to run off. Calder, however, also exhibits a lot of habits that are common to inventors. In the years that I've been studying invention, I've, I've seen some of these uh, motifs played out over and over again. Inventors do their homework. That means that they have or they acquire the training or skills that they need to succeed in the field that they've chosen. Calder's engineering background provides this knowledge of physics and kinetics that he needs to create this art. Inventors often use analogy to develop their ideas, seeing how one thing may be like another and applying knowledge from one field to another. Calder's training as an engineer, as well as skills he acquired in his myriad jobs before committing to being an artist, were applied in his manipulation of metal, wire, and found objects to create his art. Inventors refine their ideas and reduce them to practice. One method for doing this is sketching, and another is building a model. Now, Calder didn't make sketches or blueprints for his large stabiles. Instead, he made small models that were about a foot high. Those were disassembled and scaled up at the foundry, cast in separate pieces, and then put back together. One of his friends referred to him as Sandy the blacksmith. And we recently had a chance at American History to see this process in reverse when our Calder, the Gwen Fritz, was taken apart for restoration and moved to a new location on the west side of the building. It's back there now and it looks gorgeous. Please come and see it. Observing how a prototype behaves or how a model behaves and comparing that to the expected outcome often leads to tweaking the invention to achieve the desired results. And I think Calder seems to be a great tweaker. One story I read said that the artist would appear at his gallery carrying shears and pliers with a roll of wire hung over his shoulder and produce an entire show of wire sculptures on the spot. In invention and engineering, the concept of elegant design and elegant solutions is often mentioned. 
And so I'd like you to take a moment to look at the simplicity of the construction of the pieces in here. There are simple, clean linkages that support the mobiles. The stibial pieces are held together with straightforward bolts, you'll see in that one of our Gwen Fritz. There's an economy and simplicity to the way he does things. And it all seems extremely appropriate and elegant. I've also noticed over the years that there are some personality traits that inventors tend to exhibit. And I think these apply to Calder as well. One is insatiable curiosity. Inventors are never satisfied. There's always the next thing, something else, a tweak, an improvement, something. They're not discouraged by failure. They're intrigued by difficult problems. They're open to unpredictable, serendipitous results. They're tenacious, but most of all, they're playful. These are three of my favorites. This is Calder on the bottom. The top is Thomas Edison doing something not right with a pelican. <laughs> and this is another artist that some of you may know, a contemporary kinetic artist named Arthur Ganson, whose whimsical motorized sculptures are, are not to be missed. A few years ago, the Lemelson Center had an exhibition called Invention at Play. And it was based on research that we did that revealed similarities between the way children approach play and the ways that inventors think about invention. So here's just a couple of those, those, those similarities. Trying things out. Children use play to explore the world around them, to find out what happens when they do something, to understand how things work. And inventors tinker with materials and ideas in a similar way. I think you see that in, in Calder's work as well, that exploration. Visual thinking. Children use their imaginations to create pretend worlds, and inventors often speak about seeing their invention in their mind's eye long before it is realized. The idea that Calder wasn't sketching out his ideas tends to say that he had a very strong sense of visual thinking. In all of these ways, in, the, in these shared characteristics with inventors, in this approach to life that I've seen in Calder's work, one quote came that I found just really seemed to encapsulate him very well. And it's from James Johnson Sweeney, who was a Museum of Modern Art curator and the director of the Guggenheim. And he said, it was in the field of play, Calder was most at home and most fully alive. Play with shapes, colors, lines, movement, and forms. Thanks. The reason we're standing here is because we actually have the objects to look at. And the fact that I'm here means I can break the rules. So I'd like to show you an example of what, some of what she's talking about. One of the reasons this gallery has the works in it, we have many more, is that we have an unusual number of works from the 1940s. Well, a couple from the late 30s, but mostly 40s on up through the 70s. So we have a complete array of his, his things. The big ones are outdoors, one of them. In front of the building, it's the one with bolts that you walk under. And you walk under it. It's meant to be walked under. But what I put on view here are some of the earlier pieces. And I'm particularly interested in what he did during the Depression, the, late, the last years of the Depression, and the years of World War II, because he was not rich. He had to earn his living doing things. And although he did, 
Um, there are not a lot of materials when you don't have money. You can't pay. You can use junk, but you can't buy actual sheet metal. And so, and there was lack of materials after Pearl Harbor. So these are works, these three, from 1936 to 43. And in them, and this is a common misunderstanding of his work, is he did not really incorporate sophisticated movement, independent movement, until this time. He had works that uh, the circus is hand-cranked and tugged, and if you want to see it, the last chance is now. It'll be off view for five years. So before the end of the year, the Whitney's closing, if it isn't already closed. <laughs> um, and they have the great Calder, one of the great Calder collections. Is there a video of this circus? Somewhere, I don't know, probably okay. on YouTube, I don't know. <laughs> but at any rate, um, this piece, I can't show you because I will set off too many alarms, but this piece has a limited range of motion. It, it, it rotates back and forth. And if you can imagine the flip side, the flip side is bright red. So you're going from black against yellow to vivid red against yellow. And when that happens, your eyes start to twitch. And then what happens is that white horizontal element, you see where it's just touching? That's to stop it from going all the way around. He did not want this series of works to be what we associate with them, which are these later works. These are all from the 1950s and laters, where they can just rotate as long as there's any movement at all, and they can rotate in the opposite direction. There's no hindrance. He made hindrances in his pieces here. And that one, as it wrote, turns around, that little bit will hit the yellow panel and go tick. And it's one of the things my research is, is investigating in some things, the, the evolution of movement. Come look at this piece, and then we'll look at one more. This piece dates from about the same time as those, but he happened to have access to metal for this. And it was at one of his early experimental, and I'd say more groundbreaking, uh, events. And if you come close, come on close, you're not going to see this happen too often. <laughs> um, first of all, you'll notice that there's red, white, and black. He was going not for kind of beauteous color, but vibrant color that played with each other. Here we have white elements that are arranged in a horizontal way in different forms. There, there the forms are vertical, and here the forms are curved and on a diagonal cascading. And watch the movement. It won't go. That one won't go past that, and that one doesn't even move. So this is what he's playing with, is this kind of movement. Now watch. The guard's going to be here in a flash. <laughs> We installed it that way because that's part of what his work was about at this stage. It hits the wall. It makes a little tinkling noise. If you do it just right, as I did this morning, because we we're going to be filming these soon, um, it actually hit, I hit, did it just right then, and it hit the wall, and all the elements flattened against the wall and hugged it for about 10 seconds, and then it released and came back. Um, so you see there's an element of independent movement, not just singular round and round movement and a sense of the uh, individual movement of each of the three primary elements. When we first start, when I first started talking, the dark, the, the cascading curve, black curves, were all aligned in one direction. Now they're not. Now they're describing a kind of slight curve, and they're not all pointing in exactly the same way. You'll notice I deliberately moved it so that the elements didn't just move round until they could no longer turn. They bounce up and down. And that's the sort of thing is anything like can't do it here because we build to stop people from doing that. But if I were to jump on the platform, it would tremble like this. 
if I were to move it away from the wall so it doesn't hit the wall, that piece still can't go all the way around. He designed it so they would stop the movement. There's an element of abrupt capture, which is different from when we go over here. This is essentially the same idea. It is a support wire that has basically just a sort of two-sided triangle for a base and then rising up to support what is the mobile part. However, this was done a decade later. And just watch the kind of movement. It still incorporates the same idea that there's pivoting, there's up and down motion, and did you hear it? Each of the discs is of a slightly different size with the largest ones toward the inside so they can hit safely and don't break. And they each make a slightly different noise. We first thought of this in 1934. Um, and since I gave it a push, a shove, a pull, not a... It's really supposed to be more natural flow. The best thing to do with these things is to put them right by an air vent. And then they perform the way they're supposed to perform. Um, but you see that he's, he's, gone in a more, he's gone into more complex interactions of the individual elements. But the fundamentals are still the same. If you look on that one, those black curving petals, you'll see that he's had to go back and weight them. This is the experimental that, she, that uh, our guest speaker was talking about. Is he went back and he had to weld, or solder really at this point, um, elements on those black curves to make them balance just the way you want it, to slow them down so that they don't bounce as easily as the upper elements do. Mm -hmm. By the time he did this, he'd been doing it for long enough, and he was more into the hanging mobiles, um, that he could do it without thinking. He had, that's when he would just do with wires and things like that. I mean, just if you look at all of this, look at the how thin the wires. I can bend that between two fingers, which is, of course, what I'm not allowed to touch. <laughs> but the point is, is he, he liked that delicacy that became the more delicate it was, the more unpredictable it is. So the movement principles are the same. The ultimate effect of the visual patterns are different. He also started taking into account the lighting, because by this time he was in major museum collections. So that's what we try and do here, show that the, there's kind of a, a touching of the real, of the solid, with the intangible, which are the shadows. If, if, if I pushed it again, that back part would go around and touch its shadow. I can only push it so far. Anyway, that's why I wanted to add to what she was saying about when you, when you go from the invention, the spirit of invention, that curiosity, I come at it from the other end. I mean, I'm also a historian, but art historian, and therefore I look at the objects to see, to try and get inside his head and see how he was doing this. And this was his experimental period. By the time the 60s came and he could sell anything he made anywhere in the world, he was, he'd gotten everything sorted out. He was not experimenting anymore. He made great works, but it's these experimental ones that I think really let us know who he was as, a, as an artist. Since I'm going to take advantage of you Go. being here to ask questions that I have. <laughs> I'm curious about the one on the end. I, I read stuff about his interest in the cosmos and astronomy. Can you speak a, briefly about that? Yeah, except we don't really have the works to illustrate it. So I saw much. that one was called Constellation. So. Well, he didn't give it that title. Ah. That title was given to it by James Johnson Sweeney um, <laughs> for a series that he did. And Calder was okay with the title, but he didn't start out to make something that had uh, that overt reference. Rather, it's more works like this. Um, I don't know enough. This is where you could help me. 
the orreries and orreries. Very hard word to say. And you know, yeah, from the Enlightenment onward, with beautifully crafted brass and other metal clockwork mechanisms. Things, not just yeah, clockwork mechanisms, but also show the phases of the moon and all this other stuff. That's if I could. That one. Um, you'd see that this one starts to set, this is simpler, it's not divided into three parts. And you can see that there's usually two to three to five, sometimes as many as seven, but circular forms that suggest perhaps planets in the sky since we're underneath it looking up. And so his interest in, in the cosmos was not scientific, not astronomical, nor astrological. It was more this that sense of wonder at um, the vastness of movement in our lives, and that he could capture it and you could have it in your living room. The mechanism of the universe. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Well, anyway, you and I should have a talk sometime. Yeah, really. <laughs> we never get out of our office. <laughs> Does anyone have any questions? from big to little or little to big in terms of building up the counterweights and everything? Well, um, first of all, the mobiles, the term was coined in 1930 in Paris. They weren't actually mobiles in there. Things that had to be hand cranked and pushed and moved. So those are very kind of, uh, who's the guy who, there's a word for it, someone who invents things out of junk. Yeah, it's good enough, but no, there's a specific historical figure, I can't think of it right now. And so that's what those were. Those were the very, like in the picture she showed you of the studio, they're just, they were pretty much things thrown together out of curiosity and fun. Because anything went in Paris in the 1930s. But when he came back to this country, he had to make a living. And that's when he started going, okay, if I'm going to have a show at my dealer, which he did every year in New York, uh, and he has this one big room, I'll make this one big one. And, you know, he's got two small galleries, so I'll make some standing pieces and one hanging piece that's only this big. The question of size for him only came into play in the latter years, after about 1965, when he started working on the big things like the black one we have out front, like the Glenn Fritz. So, um, there's a, come in my office sometime, Glenn, which you all can't do, but there's this wonderful <laughs> picture of Calder. Um, with the model they call it in French a maquette for our big black piece that's out front, as if he's taking it for a walk on a leash. And he did that with more than one. Um, the idea that, in fact, that's one of his original sources of inspiration for those was insects, spiders and stuff. And so he'd go from the little maquette, which he could do easily and cut with just metal shears in his studio, but that was really only in his late works. What I'm also interested in is within the scope of, say, a single work, when, if he's not sketching things out and he's experimenting with what counterbalances what, does, did he start, like, in this work with the smallest element and build out from there? Or did he say, I want something sort of this big and it needs this much to counterbalance it and I'm going to work down this? No one interviewed him in the process of the studio, so we don't really know, but I would say unlikely. When you study a lot of his, you'll see that there's nearly always a balance between multiple smaller elements changing in size and one, two, three, four larger. In that one, for example, it's the one white form. And so he's usually trying to balance one larger form with more than one lighter form, and he just played with it until he got it. 
And that's what I meant by doing this. He had to figure it out. He had to take things off and cut more off this particular piece of metal, add some to here. And the way he tied the metal, the way the, the hooks he used on there are not as free floating as the hooks that he did there. These are much simpler. And so by that time, by the time he's doing it, making these mobiles, yeah, he could hang it up and put parts of it up there and come back to it. He didn't usually sit down and make it all at once. How much, how much interaction did he have with like the mainstream inventors? I was thinking particularly because you showed some pictures of, and you were in MIT. Like Edison? No, people like Edgerton. Um, none that I know of. On Calder's biography, but the stuff, the, the stuff that I've read, it, it's not crossing over. I, you know, photos like Edgerton stuff and, and Mox and stuff, it would have been out there. People, especially somebody in the art world, would have known about this. But whether they had any personal connections, all the connections I've I've read about, and, and you can help me with this, have been to you know fellow artists like Duchamp and Leger and others. He was. Coming from a family of artists, his interest was primarily in an artistic milieu. He didn't really feel the need to go talk to Einstein or anything like that. Um, if you look at some of the art periodicals, and just the ordinary periodicals of the 1920s, in particular the 1920s, there's a lot of reporting on scientific and engineering advances, both in European and American periodicals. That tends to be how people found things out. But he really wasn't interested in finding someone who might know a better way to make it move faster. And was, pe people like Edgerton are, are yeah, regularly like, in Life when magazine. When did Edgerton's work started? He started in the no, 30s. Getting, get, getting noticed in the art world. In the art world, um, well, I think the first photograph was collected at by MoMA in the 30s. Actually, he's not the photographer that, that Calder would have been looking at first. He was someone he looked at when he came back to the US in 1934. But what was of greater importance was an older photographer named Moybridge. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I passed and his yeah, horses in motion. You did, you did. But I wasn't sure that everybody got that. <laughs> um, Moybridge's uh, stop motion photographs were widely published again and again once they were sort of rediscovered. Mostly made in the 1980s, but if you look, they were published a lot in the 1920s. So that when Edgerton came along, Edgerton worked in larger scale, better quality pictures. Um, Moy bridges are this big. Well, there's also a very, it's a very different technology. Um, my bridge lines up a series of cameras with trip wires, so the horse, as it's running, trips shutter after shutter after shutter. That's how we get this. Murray actually constructs a photographic gun, he calls it, that has, it almost looks, if there's any of, of us here who remember Viewmasters, it sort of looks like that, whereas he pulls the trigger, the wheel moves around and exposes little images around to get these kinds of blurred motions. The one that I showed that just looked like black and white sticks, he actually would dress his subjects in a black suit and put the white lines on that suit so he could see exactly what are the, his, his interest is in physiology and how are the balloons moving. Edgerton adapts to that stuff. He does, he does photographs of people dressed in black to isolate parts of the motion. And by the 30s, by the 40s, Edgerton wins an Academy Award for a short subject that is done called Quicker and a Wink, showing his photography. He's in Life magazine all over. He is, um, he is not 
a shy inventor who stays in the lab. He wants to get the strobe out there. He develops all kinds of variations on this one technology from a, a flash to use in a photographic studio to take pictures of kids who don't want to stand, sit still for very long to gigantic flash tubes that are mounted in airplanes during World War II to do nighttime reconnaissance photography. So he's, he's very much about proselytizing the strobe and it does become quite well known. I think they got Pretty, pretty good bang for their buck. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming. It's a serious degree. It's my pleasure. I'd like to add, since we were just talking about Edgerton, um, his, uh, and his colleagues, Germishausen. Uh, you know, Germishausen. Yeah, and Greer. And Greer. Sorry. So um, <laughs> anyway, uh, their photography of nuclear explosions, nuclear detonations, starts off damage control, our big show on the second level one floor down. So check it's his job to make a pitch. Yeah. No, it's, it it's very interesting because uh, he starts off by figuring out how to do still photographs of explosions. Now, most of his stuff is about how do you see something you can't normally see because it's too fast, it's too dim, it's too small, whatever. Well, now you have something that light is not a problem. So now it becomes a problem of how do you cut off the exposure so you don't overexpose your plate. And he comes up with this ingenious thing called the Rapitronic, which actually uses what's known as the Faraday effect, which basically says if you have two polarized lenses, at some point, if you rotate them in opposite direction, at one point, they cross each other out and completely block light. And so the Rapitronic, but they don't actually rotate physically. They rotate through an electromagnetic field. When that happens, this, the, the uh, aperture of the camera, the Rapitronic, which looks like a pipe bomb actually, <laughs> is open for the, the smallest, 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 smallest amount of time that lets the light from the explosion get through and you get these very, very scary images of atomic detonations. What we're showing downstairs is motion picture footage of this, which is even scarier. <laughs> I think we should probably put an end to this because it's supposed to be half an hour. We've gone for 35. I think we did a lot for 35. <laughs> thank, you. thank you. For thank you very much. Thank you for coming, folks. This was fun. <laughs>